Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your invitation right now to keep our eyes on the prize and to focus on your word to us this morning. We pray a word of encouragement, a word of challenge, a word for every single one of us, no matter where in our journey of faith we currently are situated, that you would speak to us this morning. We have great confidence that as we open up the Bible this morning, you, the living God, speak to us through its words. Uh, so we, we ask you to fulfill your promise to us now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you know I was in Orlando this past week, uh, the second half of the week, at a meeting of our denomination's Revelation 7-9 task force, which I co-chair. Some of you uh, will never have heard of that task force, so let me state as succinctly what its purpose is. This task force seeks to help churches to improve their delivery of the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations, all ethnicities, and to help in their delivery of the great, the, the great commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves and to do so within their one, three, five-mile radius of, of their church. It was an excellent meeting, but the reason I mention that here is because on Thursday evening, while in my hotel room, I discovered that all my notes for Zechariah 2 for this sermon had disappeared from my computer I couldn't for the life of me find where they are. I know from some of you, you understand how these computer things happen because I've counseled you through that, but uh, you couldn't work out how I could have lost them. But half an hour after that, I was going to dinner with some of the, the others on, my, on the team. I shared the unfortunate you, news. Most of them had had similar experiences, and while there was a little bit of sympathy, uh, their general reaction was just suck it up. You'll... <laughs> You'll be fine. That's what pastors do for other pastors. But then when I mentioned that this morning the Lincoln University Choir would be here, they said, well, you're going to be fine. No one's going to remember your sermon this morning. All they're going to think about and be talking about after this service is the wonderful music. However, one of my friends, an African-American brother, said, well, you know what, what, what happens in our tradition. You look down at the choir and you look to see whose eye you can catch, and then you say, and now brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so is gonna come up and give us a word from the Lord, and then, and then you get off. And so I'm looking, I'm looking, but all of you in the choir will be relieved to hear that much to my relief and surprise at 11.30 on Thursday night, I found my sermon notes and so, so you're off the hook. And I have to say, I'm delighted to be preaching on this chapter today because its message is, is a great message. The message of this sermon and today's sermon in a sentence are just two words, think bigger, think bigger. And to get there, we're going to look at three things from this passage today. Number one, think bigger and let God's promise correct your perceptions. Think bigger and let God's summons awaken your urgency. And thirdly, think bigger, let God's presence inspire your praise, all so that we might indeed think bigger. So first, let God's promise uh, correct your perceptions. Not all of us were here last week as we began this series in Zechariah, so let me bring all of us up to speed. The year in, here in Zechariah 1 and 2 is 520 BC, about 20 years after some of the Israelites had started dribbling back to their homeland after 70 years in exile in Babylon. By now, this point, Babylon has fallen to Persia. So the Israelites are now under the rule of Persia, under their king Darius. 
And while there would have been some relief, maybe even excitement at, at the time, at returning to their homeland, to the promised land, now 20 years on, any novelty of returning to the land of their ancestors to rebuild that once great kingdom has worn off. They, they'd returned to a broken down, rubble-filled ruin that had once been the, the magnificent city of Jerusalem, in the midst of which now could still be seen the wreckage of what had been the glorious temple of the Lord. They'd actually tried to start rebuilding the temple. That work had stalled 10 years prior to Zechariah, ground to a screeching halt. In addition, the land was facing a terrible famine. Now, returning people were dealing with the suspicion of those who had never left, and it's into those terrible circumstances that God sends the prophet Zechariah with a message of hope and comfort. It's a message made up of eight visions, two sermons, two oracles, uh, to a people who were disillusioned, disappointed, and just a, a bit fed up with life, which could possibly be some of us this morning as we look at life. Chapter 1 began with the overall message of the book, uh, which was this, God tells the people, return to me. That is, it's not just enough to return to the land, return to me, and he says, I will return to you. And Zechariah tells us in chapter 1, the people did return. They repented of their sins. And then in the second half of the chapter, God begins to uh, say through the prophet what his return to them is going to look like. First of all, he said it's going to mean that God is going to come in judgment against those nations whom, while God had used them to judge Israel, they had gone way beyond what God had asked them. They had thrown, uh, thrown fuel on the fire. They had subjugated and plundered Israel. And God is a God of justice, and he will hold to account those rulers who unjustly subjugate and terrorize others. God will hold Russia to account for what it is doing right now in Ukraine. God announces his judgment here of Israel's and Judah's uh, aggressors, and then he says this to Zechariah. We're still in chapter 1. Chapter 1, 16 to 17. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. God's going to return, and it looks like he's going to be involved in a pretty significant rebuilding project. However, as we're about to see, it's way beyond anyone's expectations. This rebuilding project is not going to be according to conventional wisdom. God's promise was going to correct everyone's perceptions. So we come to the beginning of our passage, the passage that Sonia read for us. Look again at chapter 2. Verses 1 to the beginning of 4. Zechariah says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its height. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man. And we'll see what he's going to say in a moment. So this is Zechariah's third vision. Remember, eight visions in all. This is the third and again, there's someone in this third vision with a measuring line in his hand, just like there was in the first vision. One old Scottish commentator picked up on these references to measuring lines and suggested that they're intended here 
to teach us about the need for good city planning. He illustrated the point by pointing to the city of Edinburgh as an example, Edinburgh in Scotland, as an example of a city that has not been planned well. I know there are some of you in the congregation with a background in town planning or architecture who might agree that city planning is important, but I can safely say that's not the point of Zachariah too. Zachariah may have been thinking about Edinburgh, I can't speak for him, but he doesn't actually mention it here if you look closely at the text. What he does tell us is that he actually steps from being a spectator of this vision and the other visions into the tapestry of this third vision and is so caught up in everything that's going on that he asks the young man in the vision a question. He said, where are you going? And the young man tells him, based on what we just saw in chapter one, he's going to measure Jerusalem in order to get its dimensions. And at that point, Zachariah becomes a spectator again, listening in, watching a conversation that develops between two angels, a conversation in which one angel tells the other angel to sprint after the young man with a message. Now, you have to figure, based on that information, this message has to be rather urgent. I'm pretty sure this is the only place in the Bible where an angel breaks into a run. If you can find another one, let me know. But I think this is the only running angel in the Bible. It must have been a terribly important message. So what was it? Well, here it is, verses 4 to 5. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. The reason the angel has to run and catch up with the young man who had the measuring line because, was because the young man's approach to evaluating the dimensions of the city was completely wrong-headed. His measuring line, it turned out, was simply an emblem of conventional wisdom and human expectations. And when you're called to think bigger, conventional wisdom isn't always the best metric. Yesterday, the legendary Australian athlete John Landy died at the age of 91. You may not have heard of Landy, but he became the second athlete in history after Roger Bannister to run a four-minute mile. But one lesser-known Australian runner who deserves to be better known is a man called Cliff Young. Back in 1983, Young, who was an Australian sheep farmer, age 61, took his place at the starting line among the athletes of, at the beginning of an ultramarathon. Don't know if you know this, but an ultramarathon is 545 miles long, usually takes about seven days to complete. The athletes run for 18, 18 hours, then they sleep at the side of the road for six hours, they get up, they run another 18 hours, sleep at the side for six, and so on and so on. It's quite an ordeal. Well, as Young lined up to begin the race, let's just say he stood out from the crowd. Wearing overalls and work boots, Young picked up his number, uh, propped out his false teeth because they rattled when he ran, and he stepped into line with a, young, with a group of young, nylon-clad super athletes waiting to start the grueling race. He was 30 years older than any of the other competitors, and it was his first ever competitive race that he'd run. So the starting pistol fires, and Cliff Young, unsurprisingly, is left in the dust. In fact, Cliff Young doesn't really run at all. He shuffles, barely lifting his feet from the ground, and pretty soon he's fallen behind the entire pack of other runners. But while the other runners slept, that six-hour sleep at the side of the road, 
he just kept shuffling along. He'd never been told that the way to run an ultramarathon is six hours of sleep and 18 hours of running. Because when he, on his farm, when a storm approached, he would have to try to beat the weather. And he'd run down his sheep on his 2,000-acre farm on foot, often outrunning the weather, taking him three entire days. And on those three days, he never stopped running. And so in this ultramarathon, he just keeps going. And on the last night of the race, I mean, it's a real tortoise and hare story here. On the last night of the race, while the other athletes were sleeping, Cliff Young passed the opposition. He ran with his distinctive shuffling gait for five solid days. He not only won the race, he beat the ultramarathon record. All, all the conventional wisdom, all the conventional wisdom ruled old Cliff Young out completely. His running gear, his shuffling along at a snail's pace, taking no rest. There was no way, according to conventional wisdom, that Cliff Young would finish the race, never mind win it. But friends, conventional wisdom doesn't always provide the best metrics. Sometimes our perceptions need to be adjusted in light of better, better data. And Zachariah is giving us better data here to say sometimes we need to think bigger. So here in the vision, the angel running after the young man with his measuring line to pass on a message is really a reminder to us not to judge the kingdom of God according to conventional wisdom. The measuring line suggests that God's people at this point expected a city very much like the old city, the one that had been previously destroyed, a walled fortress city capable of withstanding the military power of their oppressors. The young man had believed the prophet's earlier message that Jerusalem would be unbuilt, but he was expecting a new Jerusalem that was no different from the old one. That's what they were looking for. It's just that's not what God was promising because God's promises are always more expansive than any human measurement could ever encompass. At one level, you've got to love the young guy's enthusiasm, but his grasp of the scope of God's work in the world just was painfully inadequate. He needs to think bigger. And what the angel said must have blown his mind because he tells the young man that the Lord promises his kingdom is going to be characterized by two mind-blowing things. And the first of them was this, the size of the city. Look again at verse 4. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. He says, put away your tape. You can't measure the dimensions of the city of God. Jerusalem will be a city without walls. Now that would have not only have sounded crazy to Zechariah and his contemporaries, but the lack of a strong wall would also have been considered a sign of disgrace as is actually mentioned at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah about Jerusalem. But this Jerusalem described by God would have no walls. It's pictured almost more like a massive field or just the countryside in general. And the reason it will be like this is because there will be so many people and animals that no wall could contain it. See, the mention of the multitude of people and livestock here echoes Genesis 8.17, Genesis 9.1, after the floods in the flood in the days of Noah, when the multiplication of people and animals was a sign of God's blessing. So that far from the walls being bad news, no walls here was good news. 
So who are all these people in the New Jerusalem? Well, Zechariah tells us a few verses later in verse 11. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. This New Jerusalem will be the home for people from all the nations of the earth who love the Lord, who in Zechariah's words in chapter 1 have returned to him in repentance. In a sense, Zechariah wasn't announcing anything new here. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, God had told Adam to cultivate the earth and to fill it, to fill it. Later in the book of Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he tells him that his descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky, and more numerous than the grains of sand on the seashore. And now Zechariah really just sees another picture telling them the same thing, that when a rebuilt when, when Jerusalem is rebuilt, it, it will seem to expand to cover the whole earth and will be teeming with all kinds of life. And the New Testament picks up the same truth and brings it up incessantly. Since I've already mentioned the Revelation 7-9 task force, let me read to you the verse that's the, the backbone of our work there. The Apostle John in Revelation receives a vision, just like Zechariah receives a vision here. And in John's vision, here's what he sees. After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You hear that? Every nation, every ethnicity, all tribes and peoples and languages, black and white, Latino, Native American, Ukrainian, Russian, Because in the new Jerusalem, in God's kingdom, his people, those who are followers of Jesus, are no longer defined ethnically or racially or nationally. The only criterion for entrance is this, that you've repented of all your wrongdoing, your sins of omission and commission, and you've put your trust in what Jesus has done for you through his death and resurrection to secure your forgiveness and to adopt you into his family as as his child. And those who do that, God says right here, those are my people. Zechariah picks up on one of the key promises of God through the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It was in the the words of encouragement from Ezekiel 36 that Jeremy read from us as well. The promise is this. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. A people not defined by ethnicity or race, but by repentance and faith in him. And that will mean so many people that you won't be able to wall them in. This new Jerusalem will be such a massively prosperous city that you won't be able to enclose it with walls. And it's just going to keep spreading and spreading and spreading, which is just this gloriously wonderful picture of the spread of the gospel of Jesus throughout the world. So the first mind-blowing piece of news for the young man with a measuring line is the, the size of the city. The second related and understandably concerned the safety of the city because you can imagine Zachariah's audience saying well that's all very impressive and laudable bringing in the nations and all that but let's get practical for a moment if there are going to be no walls in this city how is the city going to maintain its security and God says I've thought of that too verse 5 I will be to her a wall of fire all around declares the Lord and I will be the glory in her midst God himself will be its walls, a wall of fire. 
And not only that, but God will be in the new Jerusalem, his glory in her midst, he says. The, the, new, the new Jerusalem won't actually need a physical temple of bricks and mortar because God will be its temple himself. So no physical walls will be needed to protect the multitude of residents there because God himself will be this wall of fire to protect his people. And God himself will live within the city. This promise of the safety and security of the city of God is one of those promises that theologians say has both an already but not yet aspect to it. It's not yet in the sense that as the book of Revelation picks up on some of Zechariah's vision, the ultimate fulfillment of this isn't going to come until Jesus returns and ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. We're not there yet. But there is an already aspect to this which is found in Jesus' church right now because God, through his Holy Spirit, dwells in every follower of Jesus and he protects us. That protection isn't necessarily from physical danger or death. Christians suffer from illness and death and disasters just like everybody else. But Jesus says that's actually not the protection that ultimately matters. What I promise to protect is your faith in me so that when I return, I'll be able to welcome you alongside all your brothers and sisters of every ethnicity and tribe and people into the new Jerusalem. Now, just we get, before we get to the second and third points, and some of you are getting worried because that's a very long first point, but <laughs> the second and third are going to be much, much briefer. But there is, before we get there, there's definitely something here just for the church to learn from the angel's message to this young man, because we are so tempted to evaluate the church like the young man in Zechariah's vision with a measuring line of merely human standards. You'll need the latest gear, they told Cliff Young, as the runners lined up for the race. You'll never get far using those methods, he said, they said. And that's how sometimes we think about the church. We look for what Richard Phillips says in his Zachariah commentary, refers to as the ABCs of church growth, attendance, buildings, and cash. Those things certainly aren't insignificant in the life of any church, but they're not the right metrics for measuring actual church strength and vitality and health. We mistakenly think that if a church is big and rich and strong, that, well, God clearly is with it, right? But here we're being reminded that the true measure of the church has nothing to do with scale, nothing to do with wealth, nothing to do with power, everything to do with the presence of the glory of the living God dwelling in our midst. That's what we most urgently need to seek if we want to be a church that is healthy and vital, a church that is pleasing to the Lord, that as we think bigger, let God's promise correct our perceptions. Secondly then, let God's summons awaken your urgency. Verses six to nine, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I've spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of, said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who served them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. God declares three times, up, up, up. 
He says, flee, escape. And the question is, okay, from what? And God says, flee from the land of the north. So that's an expression he borrows from the prophet Jeremiah, who uses it frequently to refer to Babylon. Now, Babylon, as you'll see in the map on the screen, actually lay to the east of Jerusalem. But travelers to Babylon would begin their journey by heading northward to avoid the desert that lay between the two cities. And that reference that the land of the north refers to Babylon is confirmed in verse 7 when God says, escape Zion. There's actually no two there. You can, if you're using the scripture journal, put a line through two. Escape Zion. He's addressing Zion. Escape Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. But here's the strange thing. Babylon itself had been smashed up by the Persians in 539 BC, almost 20 years prior to this prophecy. So I'd suggest that it's actually not the literal city of Babylon that the people are to flee from. I think it's what we might call the spirit of Babylon that they need to worry about. You know, the symbolic importance and significance of Babylon in the Bible goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. It goes all the way through the Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation, Revelation 18, where Babylon stands for Rome and in turn for the pagan world. That is the enemy of God, the enemy of his people. So that we could say that Babylon is a symbol of everything that is anti-God in this world. To flee Babylon is to break solidarity with a world that rejects God and to flee to God for mercy and protection. It's to be like the pilgrim in John Bunyan's classic tale, Pilgrim's Progress, who flees the city of destruction and runs to the celestial city. It's to cast your lot in with God and his people, to set out resolutely for the new Jerusalem. And I think in light of that, this summons to urgency is just as applicable to us. Because we still live and breathe in the daughter of Babylon. Every day we inhale an atmosphere that is as toxic and unnoticeable as carbon monoxide. An atmosphere that wrongly tells us that we get to define who we are. We get to define what we are. An atmosphere that tells us wrongly that we are accountable to no one but ourselves. And that what we see in this world is all that there is. We inhale the air of a worldview that says there's no accountability, there's no judgment, there's no God. God says, that's what I need you to keep fleeing from. That's what you need to escape from. Why? Why do we do that? He gives two reasons. We need to escape because of who, who we are. As he tells, he tells us, you're Zion. You know, Zion was a small hill in Jerusalem where David, King David built his palace. It be, became shorthand not for a place but for God's people. He says, that's who we are. We are God's people. We're Zion. So we flee Babylon because that's what Zion should do. But it gets better than that because he says, because we're his people... Verse 8, he says, we're the apple of God's eye. He who touches you, Zechariah says, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. We are the apple of God's eye. You know, in Old English, the pupil of the eye, the round, dark center was called the apple. And to be the apple of God's eye means that we live in the very center of his gaze. That he never takes his eyes off you if you belong to him that he delights to fill his vision with fresh sights of his church. What a beautiful picture that is of God's care and his love and his protection of his people. 
So the first reason we need to continually flee from Babylon is because of who we are. We're his people. We're the apple of his eye. But the second reason is related. He says God's judgment is going to fall severely on those who don't flee to God, but remain opposed to God and his people. God says to his people here, those who touch you touch the apple of my eye. To paraphrase the phrase, we could say that to lift a finger against the church is like poking God in the eye. It will elicit a violent reaction. That's how much he loves his people. God says he simply has to shake his hand over them and they'll melt away. In other words, for God to destroy those who oppose him and his people, it's nothing for him. And that judgment is definitely coming. That's why this chapter concludes with extremely sobering words to the entire world. He says, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling, i.e., in judgment. To flee, therefore, from Babylon is to escape judgment and find safety and security in the new Jerusalem. Let God summons awaken your urgency. And then thirdly and lastly, and appropriate for today, let God's presence inspire your praise. Look at verses 10 to 12. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Why are Zechariah's contemporaries to sing? Because God is moving back. After years of absence, he was moving back in with them. And as we'll see as we continue through this book, the first installment of this return by God would be, would be the rebuilding of the physical temple as a symbol of his presence with his people. And the reality would be that it would be a pretty second-rate temple, nowhere near the splendor of the first. But that didn't really matter because it's just a symbol. None of the tabernacles or temples in the Old Testament were the real deal. They were all shadows pointing forward to the reality, the reality being a living, breathing person by whom God would fulfill his promise to come and dwell with his people a living, breathing person in whom we actually get to meet the living God because they were all pointing forward to Jesus. The one described by the Apostle John this way, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, you know, the glory that would be in the midst of the, the new temple, the new Jerusalem. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What do you do when God comes to dwell among us through his son, Jesus Christ? You sing. What do you do when God begins to fulfill his promise of a city without walls, a city of every ethnicity before Jesus? You sing. What do you do when God keeps saying to you about his kingdom and his promises and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and the new heaven and the earth? What do you, what do you say when he keeps saying, think bigger, think bigger? You sing. And so let me close with the words from the apostle Paul to which I believe Zachariah would have given a hearty amen. 
Ephesians 3, 20 to 21, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Friends, keep your eye on the prize. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your reminder of your love for your people, that we are the apple of your eye, that we are Zion, we are your people, and you have given us such, such a beautiful future. You've promised such a great thing for us of a, a new city, a new Jerusalem in which people of every nation, tribe, and tongue will gather to sing your praises. Lord, we recognize that that its fulfillment is still in the future, but we want that to change the way in which we live today. And so help us to apply this, help us to see its relevance in our lives, help us to have that sense of urgency of fleeing from that which takes us away from you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our King. Amen.